Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Today's passage is going to be in John 13, verses 34 through 35. And that's going to say, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's muted, sorry. You guys could hear me, right? We didn't need the first couple of, uh, of notes of that anyway. Tina Turner said, what's love got to do, got to do with, I feel like I can answer that question. I can't answer every question. There are actually a lot of questions I have no answers to, but I feel like I could answer that question. And I feel like if Tina Turner asked me that question, I would definitely answer. I, I don't know how old, anybody know how old Tina Turner is? She's got to be like 260. <laughs> I feel like she could take me in a fight. So if she asked, I would answer. I mean, I just would answer. But besides all of that, People of God, listen to me. As the followers of Jesus Christ, if anybody should be able to answer the question, what's love got to do with it, it should be us. We have an answer. We have have the answer to that. And we could say, we could answer, we could answer very truthfully, very honestly, very sincerely, dear Tina, love has everything to do with it. Everything to do with it. It has everything to do with Advent, It has everything to do with life that is. I don't know if you realize this or not, but love isn't just some abstract concept. We, as followers of Jesus, believe that everything that we see and everything that we do not see is powered by a God who loves. See, here's the thing. We don't just believe in a kind of God or a God. For the majority of human history, all humanity has believed in some kind of a God. What differs is the kind of God you believe in, okay? Christianity says we believe in not just a God, we believe in a certain kind of God, and that kind of God is love. According to 1 John, John says, hey man, if you don't know love, you don't know God, for God is love. It's not what he does. It's not what he thinks. It's who he is. It is his essence, his nature. The very fabric of his being is love. That's who God is. And we believe as followers of Jesus that behind all of this that is going on, all that we see and all that we do not see, that a loving God is moving the pieces when we don't feel like it and when we do, when we understand it and when we don't. That a loving God is working all things and moving all of these people and all of these things. So yes, love has everything to do with it. Love originated with the Father. It bleeds on every page of Scripture. It is alive and active and present in this world through the Spirit, and it was incarnated, made visible, given flesh and bone and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. Every act, every decision, every move, every call, every instruction of God is bathed and drenched in the love of God. Every ounce of it. And so this morning, our aim is simple. We want to sit in the love of Christ for just a minute. I won't give you new ways to do things. I won't blow your mind with any deep theology. 
What I want to do this morning is I want to percolate, as Pastor Thomas said, in the love of Christ. Or if you're from the south side, maybe we marinate (laughs) in the love of Christ. Or some guys out on the west coast will say, saturate. I just want to sit in it for a minute. What if we took this morning and we just slowed down, pumped the brakes a little bit on a world that moves way too fast, and we just sat in the beautiful love of Jesus Christ? So John chapter 13, verse 34, we give Pastor Nathan a hard time for not being able to preach fastly through books, right? I'm not even going to preach this text. I'm going to preach a phrase, and we could probably preach on it for 17 weeks to come. We will not do that. Verse number 34 of John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one to another. We will not work the whole text. So much that could be said, so much that has been said, so much more that should be said about the commands here of our redeeming king. Um, But don't have time to do all that this morning. I want to just kind of drill down on this phrase, as I have loved you. Notice Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. What does he mean, new? Why does he use that phrase? The commandment to love one another is not a new commandment. Matter of fact, if we're listening to John the Apostle in his letter, he says, I don't write a new commandment unto you, but the commandment you've had from the beginning. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 18, we won't take the time to turn there, but God tells his people there that they are to love them, their neighbors as themselves, okay? And so this concept of loving one another and loving one another well is not a new concept. It is actually as old as the law of God itself. It has always been the heart of God that we would love one another. That has always been the will of God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, every page breathes and echoes this same constant truth that we should love one another. If that is the case, then, then why does Jesus call it new? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So there are a couple of different thoughts and schools of thoughts thinking what is new about this commandment. Some people say that it is by love now that we are marked as the people of God. So that's what theologians like to talk about. So in the Old Testament, they were marked by and distinguished by the law. Okay, just kind of pretending like you're with me, and even if you're not, just lie to me, okay? We can lie in church. It's okay, all right? You're going to do it outside of church. You might as well do it in church, right? Okay? Um, So they were ruled and they were marked. The people of Israel were marked by the law that God had given to them. And so some theologians look at John chapter 13, verse 34, and they say, well, Jesus is now saying that it's no longer law that distinguishes you as the people of God. It is now love. If you look throughout the history of humanity, there's rarely been a people group who have been marked by love. And so maybe this is the new aspect. And I would give it, I would say probably that that's true, at least in some degree. But I think other theologians will look at this verse and they'll go, it's not just the distinguishing mark of the people of God. Now, it is the very definition that has been changed. Okay? Or I, I don't even know that we should call it changed. Perhaps we should call it reworked and clarified. So here's what he says A new commandment I give to you. And what I think is the newness of it is that you love one another just as I have loved you. Because this concept of love is not new. It wasn't new for them. It's not new for us. But what Jesus did when he came on the scene is he wrapped it in human flesh and he gave it concrete reality. 
No more is this concept of love some abstract, theoretical concept, but it's now flesh and bone. It's now real. You can touch it. You can taste it. You can feel it. And so in the Old Testament, the Mosaic standard of love was you loved one another as you love yourself. Right? You with me? And Jesus takes that up a notch and he says, no, the definition now is that you love as I have loved you. So he, he now reworks the definition for them. So um, we've had to talk about this. I'm kind of in this sweet place as a dad, right? Some of you guys don't know this yet. You may never know this for a while. I've never know this. You'll know in soon enough, trust me. Um, but I don't have to really worry about my kids and telling them all the things that they have to do anymore. But there was always this time where I would have to tell them to be responsible enough to take care of their business, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, my kids are 20. How old are you? You're 19. The other one, he's still counting. Okay, he's 23, right? And I would have this conversation with them, and I would say, look, I just need you to take care of your stuff. And they would look at me and go, but Dad, I'm tired. Not everybody works like you. One of them kids said that to me. One of them kids said to me, not everybody works like you. And I realized in that moment what they had done is they had come to define hard work by their father who overworks. Now, it's not a good thing. I'm not bragging or patting myself on the back. What I'm trying to show you here is this, is that sometimes we define things by the people who are most present in our life. And Jesus comes along and says, here's what's new about this commandment to love one another. Now I want you to love as I have loved you. I'm the new standard of love. He redefines it. He is referring to himself as the divine prototype of love. I want you to love as I have loved you. I am the new standard. I am the embodiment of this love, the divine love that took on flesh and blood that was made perfectly visible, that was made concrete and real and tangible. Jesus says, that is what I want you to love like. The love that you see in me, now I want you to love like that. So we could spend hours upon our need to love like that. But I think it would be more profitable for us to just sit in how he loved. If that's the standard, then perhaps maybe we should just think about, if Jesus revolutionized their understanding of love, if the definition is now as I have loved you, then we would do well to pause and consider how he actually loved. Jordan asked me this week, how are you feeling about this sermon? And I felt like, um, somebody just asked me to describe the Grand Canyon and took all the words away and said I couldn't use any. I mean, we are literally talking about something indescribable, and I'm not a word guy. I just don't have the words to do this. And so we need help. Like, we need the Spirit of God's help to sit in this today. So this task is beyond our capacity, but I think the Spirit of God will be faithful, and we might just be able to beg ourselves rich, as one theologian said about these things. So think about Jesus and how he loved. Think about what he taught about love. Remember Jesus' teachings on love? He will redefine and re-explain all of the Old Testament concepts on love. We don't have time to get into all of them. But somebody asked Jesus about Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 18, and what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Do you remember what Jesus' response was? It was a story. Do I remember this story? Good Samaritan. Preacher's good job. 
Good job. They got it. Everybody else is like, somebody better get this. Our preacher better get this or we're leaving, right? They better know that book, okay? So Good Samaritan. Literature people, both inside of faith and outside of faith, have long held the story of the Good Samaritan as one of the most beautiful pieces of literature that there are. I don't really understand what all that means. I just know that people who don't even buy the truth of it are looking at it and going, dude, Jesus was good, Okay? And what he said about this. And what Jesus did in this moment is he took their understanding that had become so narrow and so restricted. And they only loved people who were like them. You with me? They only loved people who were like them. And Jesus told this story of the Good Samaritan. And he said, it's not just people who are like us, but it's also those who are not like us at all. We are to love all men like this. And so Jesus takes this and he takes it a step further. Not just love those who are like you, but love those who are not like you. And then he comes on in this other teaching and he says, love your enemies. As you're, love your enemies? That's not even human, man. We don't do that, right? You understand what I'm saying? And he says, not only do I, am I to love my neighbor as myself, and not only am I to love those who aren't like me, I'm to love those who don't like me. Anybody got any of those? To love those who aren't like me and to love those who don't like me. Everybody should like me. I'm a very likable cat. I mean, I just am. You should like me. And if you feel like the Spirit of God right now is leading you to like me, that's truth, right? I don't know about all that. All I know is this, is that Jesus' teachings on love are just, I mean, we could spend eons talking about what he taught about love. But if Jesus only taught really neat things about love, I really doubt that we would still be talking about him as much as we do now. John is not telling them, hey, Jesus is not telling them, hey, look back on what I taught you about love. Jesus says, as I have loved you. Not what I taught, but what I did. What examples come to mind when you think about Jesus fleshing out in real time this transcendent love? Maybe in just a couple of chapters before John 13, you will read of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And Lazarus has died. And do you know what they said to Jesus to announce it to him? Do you know how they phrased it? Hey, Lazarus, whom you loved has died. Mary and Martha will later reiterate it and he'll say he loved Mary and Martha. He loved Lazarus. When Jesus weeps, the crowd will look on and they may even be mistaken, but they look on the weeping Jesus and what they say is, oh, how he loved him. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. Maybe it's the leper in Matthew chapter eight. Matthew chapter eight, a leper comes to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Do you know what if you are willing means? Do you want to? The leper doesn't even question the power of Jesus Christ. It's not a question of can you, it's a question of do you want to. Have you ever felt like that with God? Like, listen, I got some struggles in my faith, and I'm not even afraid of those things. I'm not scared of them at all anymore because I believe in a God who's not scared of those things anymore. And, and I, sometimes my question is not can he, my question is does he want to? Why would he want to? And this, this leper comes to Jesus and he said, if you're willing, if you want to, you can make me clean. And you know what Jesus did? He touched him. He didn't have to touch him. We don't know that the touch is what healed him. 
But you know what lepers did not receive on a daily basis? Touch. They weren't touched. And so Jesus is not only restoring this man's body, Jesus is healing this man's soul. What love and compassion he is moved with. Think about the widow's son in Luke chapter 7. Jesus catches a funeral procession on his way into town, and the writer of Luke says he's moved with compassion, and he sees a mom who has lost her son. And if you sat there on that deathbed or beside a deathbed, and you've seen this, and you've seen the grief, and Jesus, what he does is he raises this son back to life. And what he, this is beautiful. The scriptures say not only did he raise him to life, but he presented him to his mother. As if he was gifting, as if he looked at the mom and his heart broke for the mom. I know this is hard for us to wrap our minds around and understand, but what if Jesus actually entered into the pain and suffering as the scripture says that he did, into her heart hurt and into her heartache and was moved towards her because of that? We could talk about the woman at the well. We could talk about the woman caught in adultery. Pastor Nathan threw out the illustration of Zacchaeus. I don't know why he wanted to throw out a short guy. You guys were confused this morning when you came in, huh? Brother Thomas was in the blazer, so you thought he was preaching, and then you saw the little podium, and you were like, uh, that looks like Kevin's podium. My podium is as short as Paxton's, who sits down. Nathan's like, oh, if I think about Jesus' love, it's got to be Zacchaeus. Yeah, all you tall people. Yeah, I love you anyway. You know, Zacchaeus, Jesus went to his house. We don't know that Jesus commanded him to do anything. And when Jesus left, Zacchaeus said, I'll give half of everything. Or what did he say? He said, I'll give it. I'll give it away. Changed without a command. How do, you, how, how do you change somebody without a command? Their heart changes. Zacchaeus' heart was changed by the love of Christ. We could talk about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him to go, go sell all that you have. And you know what the rich young ruler did? He chose wealth over Jesus. But do you know what Mark says about Jesus? He loved him. You understand that Jesus loved the rejecter as much as he loved the believer. We could talk about how patient he was with his disciples. We could talk about Peter, who on the eve of Jesus' death, Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me, but I've prayed for you. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine living with death on your door and knowing that those closest to you not might forsake you but will forsake you and not being angered or outraged by that but being so moved with love that you pray for them? Judas comes to take Jesus in the garden and he kisses him on the cheek do you know what Jesus called Judas? Friend. Not enemy. Not betrayer. Not one who sold me for 30 pieces of silver. Friend. On the cross, he cried, Father, forgive them. 
earlier in John chapter 13, verse number one, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, listen to it, he loved them to the end. It did not relent. His love did not tire. Love held his heart for them even though they would all forsake him and flee. And these are but a snapshot. Every ounce of his life was bathed in this self-giving, willful moving towards the ultimate good of another. Every blind eye that he opened, every lame leg that he made to walk, every issue of blood that he dried up, every leper that he cleansed, every prisoner that he set free, every act of tenderness, of patience, every resurrection, all of it he did because he loved. I used, to, I used to sit around and think about the miracles of Jesus and think that they, he did those things to demonstrate his deity. And while I definitely see that there is truth in that, I, I see there's certainly evidence of his deity in doing all of these things. The motive for him doing all of these things is less about him proving himself and more about him being himself. The God who is love. This is what love does. Love moves in this way. And even if we fast forward all the way through the New Testament and we discussed all of the things that the scripture writers attribute to the love of God, like adoption and security and the access to his throne and every other New Testament detail about this, we would be remiss if we did not talk about where the scripture always anchors us, the reference point that it always gives us for his love. God never looks at you and says, do you want to know if I love you or not, how do you feel? Do you want to know why that is? It's not because your feelings are bad. Just, let me sit in this for just a moment, okay? Feelings are not of the devil, Bobby Boucher. They're not. You were created in the image of God. And in the image of God, you were given feelings. I don't know what that means or how that fleshes out. What I know is that they're not the devil. I do know that they don't drive the car very well. You with me? Okay. So in all of this, what we're talking about here is that God never says, hey, you know what, how do you feel in this moment? Whenever God wants to clarify and demonstrate and make sure that we get his love, he always gives us the reference point of the cross. Hereby perceive we the love of God, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Greater love hath no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this the love of God was manifested among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I've shared this with you a thousand times before. I will share it until I cannot share it anymore. That the reference point for God's love is always the cross. It is always the king who chose to bleed. No king ever chose to bleed. We all bleed. You may choose when, how, all the things like that. Jesus Christ chose to bleed for those whom he loved. There is no love like this. The world has never known, nor will it ever be able to muster or invent a love like this on its own. And if you feel like that there is a love like this out there, then it's not because the love of Christ is deficient. It's because my words are inadequate. 
Did you know that this love is so radical that the early followers of Jesus actually took a word captive to describe it? How many of you have ever heard the word agape? Anybody know what the word agape means? It means love. Good job, Thomas. Our pastors are two for two today. I'm loving it, right? Um, a lot of times what we do is we say that the word agape refers to God's love and divine love. It does now, but it didn't always. It's actually a word that was in existence and used, not a lot though, before Christians began to use it to define and describe God's love. And now whenever you hear it, the word just meant to love. That's what it meant. There are different ways in the Greek language to describe love. But what happens is when Jesus comes along and he loves like this, his early followers are like, we need a word for that. Like, I've never seen anything like this. I need to put flesh and bone handles on this. I need a way to describe it. And so they chose this. And, and it wasn't so much that agape defined his love as it was his love defined agape. Did you, did you follow that? His love is now their standard, their understanding of love. And it means this. It is, oh, if you put, put all of these pieces together, it is the will or the choice to act toward another's ultimate good. Have you ever heard the word benevolent? You know, the, I said I'm not a word guy, but I'm feeling like a word guy today. Man, uh, benevolent is made up of two Latin words, bene. I don't know how to say it. I'm not Latin, if you couldn't tell, right? I don't know what Latin, I don't know. Anyway, um, bene means good, volant, volant, I, I, I don't know how to say it. It means wish or will. It is to wish or will the ultimate good of another person. It's what love is. It's not something that you fall in of, into. It's not something that you fall out of necessarily when we are talking about God's love. I'll give you three handles for this, and we're getting really close to landing this plane, I promise. I'll give you three handles for this because I think this is good. A love that cannot be earned is what God's love is. It cannot be earned. It is unconditional. The Old Testament or the old scholars would talk about it is spontaneous. What that means is it originates in the heart of the lover and not in the merit of the one loved. You ever held your baby? And you looked at him and you were like, how could I not love this person? It's merited, right? It's warranted. It's deserved. And when we talk about the love of God, we are talking not a love that is deserved, but a love of choice. Not something that one falls into or out of, but something that one decides to do. It is an act of the will to act in a way that brings well-being to others. It is the steady intention of the will to another's good that is not conditioned upon the object. It is not based on the object's value or worth or what it can provide in return. Hear me on this, and I didn't come up with this. I read this somewhere. But the love of God does, it creates value rather than responding to value. Creates value rather than responding to value. It is a love that cannot be earned. And if it is a love that cannot be earned, then it is a love that cannot be lost. Hear me? 
If it cannot be earned, if it originates in the heart of the lover and not the merit of those who are loved, then it cannot be lost. His love to them was to the end, it says in John chapter 13, verse number 1. In Jeremiah, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It is a love without beginning or end from before the foundations of the world. And that ought to sink into our hearts more than just some distant theology doctrine. We ought to understand that his love for me, his care for me, is as steady as the rising sun. It does not change. His intention to our ultimate good is forever steady. Brian Chappell said this. He said, for many years, I did not understand the constancy of God's care. I thought my level of obedience was the throttle on his heart. The more righteousness from me, the more care from him. My friend, it is not earned. And therefore, it cannot be lost. Look at John chapter 15, verse number 9. I want to say this. It is a love that cannot be exhausted. John 15, verse number 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It is immeasurable. We cannot plunge the depths. We will not wear it out. I hope I'm growing more patient with my children the older I get. I don't know that I am. You have to ask them to. Um, and they give permission to lie in church. Um, right, just like everybody else, right? Got to be fair. Um, but even they know that there's a limit. I wish there wasn't a limit. But there is, right? They know they can wear dad out. They sometimes know that dad can wear himself out long before they ever get there, right? I wish there wasn't. The truth about God's love is you won't wear it out. Dear friend, God never looked at you once and said not again. You hear me? Never once did he say not again. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, me who is most worthy, I love you with the same kind of love who are most unworthy. Could we with ink the ocean feel were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? That's a writing utensil for those of you who do not know. And every man a scribe by trade, everyone trained to record. If, if, the, if the skies, or the, the, the seas were filled with ink, and the skies were the paper that we could write on, and every piece and blade of grass on creation was something that we could write with, and everybody knew how to write well, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels' song. You see, dear friend, we believe not only in a kind of God, a God who loves, but we believe in a 
kind of love that he gives. Let's land this plane with Ephesians chapter 3. Again, there is too much here to parse out. But in this text in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, sandwiched between Paul's theology of who we are in Christ and Paul's call to obedience to Christ is this beautiful prayer in verses 14 through 19, and here's why. Because you and I don't just need truth or commands, we need help. And so he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, notice it's according to the riches, it means not from his abundance, but according to his abundance. In other words, it's not because he can give, it's giving to the amount that he can give. His abundant riches of his glory that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. And where? Inner being. Your inner man needs constant supplies of grace. And Paul prays for this. I want your inner man to be strengthened by the Spirit of God. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I thought Christ already dwells in our hearts. The concept of dwell means this. So if I go over to the brewer's house today, by the way, I'm coming over. Um, what you got for dinner? It's not like you have a lot of mouths to feed, right? One extra, right? They're as tall as me. We're good, right? You'll never even know I'm there. Okay? It's not my home. If you go over to the brewer's house, guess what? It's going to look like the brewers live there. I mean, with, with, with me, right? To dwell means that it feels so much like home that it takes on the characteristics of the one who lives there. If you come to my house, you will probably find some piece of pallet-built furniture. It's who I am. And my house reflects that character. It's also got some purple and some bright colors because it also reflects my wife's nature and character, right? Right? What am I telling you? I'm telling you this. When Paul says, I'm praying that the Lord will dwell in your hearts, what he's saying is this. I want him to feel so at home in you that all of you begins to look like him. And he says this, that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. The soil that roots our lives the foundation on which our life is built. It is where we draw life and strength and stability from. You may have the strength to comprehend. It has the ideal of apprehending, of seizing, of laying hold of with all the saints. That shows you that this is a collective project. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? The depth of what? The height of what? Of his love. What, what do you, what, the what, the what? The breadth and the length, and I work in dimensions all day, every day. It's what I do for a living. 
And what we're talking about here is not that you can measure it out, though there are a lot of sermons and we could think all the way through this and it would be really fun to do. But basically what Paul is saying, listen, I want you to be so firmly planted and laying a hold of the immeasurable love of God, the scope of it, the extent of it, the fullness of it. I don't want you just to taste a part of it. I want you to feel it in the depth of your being. Listen to what he says. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, that's a weird phrase. I want you to know what is beyond knowledge. What it means is this. It has less the ideal that it can't be understood and more the ideal that it cannot be exhausted. You hear me? Not so much. And, and, and the word know here is just, I mean, it's really so incredibly powerful. It is more than merely grasping an intellectual truth. It is more than holding to a certain belief about a God who loves. It is more than a set of concepts and principles. It is to come to grasp this truth of the love of God by deep and consistent experience. He's not praying that they would be able to better articulate the love of God. He's praying that they would be able to feel it in the depth of their being. That they were loved by God. That it would seize them at the very core of who they were, that they would feel it as much as they had ever felt anything, that they would be deeply attentive to its expression and keenly aware of its application, that all of their life would be brought under the influence of his transcendent love. He is begging God to flood them with his infinite, redeeming, immeasurable love to saturate every ounce of their lives with it. That it would be more than an abstract concept of divine, radical, even self-giving love. He's praying that it would become so real and so concrete that it was just as real as the chair that you're sitting in. You know what I'm talking about? When it's not just some theoretical concept of love. But I am loved. Do you remember what Jesus you know what, Jesus, it always says this. The Father always says this to Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Day in and day out, Jesus' heart is enveloped with the love of his Father. Paul says, oh, the life that I now live in the faith, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved what? Who loved me. And gave himself for me. See, what happens is Paul is praying for this to move beyond. Yes, God is love. God loves the world. God loves us to where we go. God loves me. Right now, right now, this moment, where I am, where I'm not, where I want to be, where I wish I was, where I regret that I am, God loves me. In this moment, for it to be as real as the chair that you are sitting in, that you know it, you feel it, it's in the depth of your being. It is not some theological concept. It is the reality of my existence that I am loved. As Jesus closes his life in John chapter 13 through 15, he talks more in those couple of chapters than anywhere else that I know of about how he specifically loves them. I don't know what that means. What I know is this, is Jesus is about to leave and what he wants his disciples to know I want you to know I love you. 
I don't want you to have to guess at it. I don't want you to have to assume it. I want you to know it. Thought about this as my kids are getting older, and I used to want them to think that I'm the cool dad, and they do, and I am. I used to want them to think that I could do a lot of things, and I can't, but they think I can. Um, now I just want them to know that, hey, they're loved no matter what. I mean, you get that right? You get what I'm saying? It's not that you want them to see an act of love. You just want them to know in the depths of their being that they are loved. And hell or high water will not change it. So here's what I want to do this morning as we wrap this up. I want, to, I want you to bow your heads and I want you to close your eyes. And I don't want to rush through this. I don't want to rush to the next thing. I want you to sit in this for a minute. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want you to ask yourself a question. What word or word would you use to describe your heart right now? Where are you at? Perhaps you're rushed, exhausted. Overwhelmed. The weight is just heavy. Maybe it is loneliness. Perhaps it is grief. Maybe this morning you feel too far gone. Preacher, if you only knew how far I am from where I was. Maybe now you've got questions. You've got questions that you don't want to ask because you're afraid of the way people will look at you if you do. Maybe you have more doubt than faith. Perhaps you're wounded this morning. And the wound is as fresh today as it has ever been. Maybe you find yourself at a place of hopelessness. Any other word you pick, I want you to hear his voice this morning. You are my beloved child. Say, but preacher, I'm not. Hey, you can be. You can be today. You are my beloved child. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have set my affection on you. And right now, in this actual moment, I love you still. My heart is ever for you. The steady intention of my heart is always your good. Even now, whatever the now is. You have never been, nor will you ever be, more loved than you are in this moment.
Father, give us grace to fill the depth of this beyond words, beyond understanding, a love that cannot be exhausted, it cannot be measured, but it can be known. It can be experienced. It can be felt. And I pray at the core of our being today Dear Jesus, your love would not be some theological concept, but that I would feel it as real as if you were physically standing here wrapping your arms around me. We pray it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.